Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports continuing decline in big labor's labor force position. Radical left author Naomi Klein admits that the Green New Deal is about making your life worse. And as pro-lifers march for life, we consider the possible ramifications, Planned Parenthood losing public funding. Tell me if you've heard this one before. In its annual survey of union membership, the federal government's Bureau of Labor Statistics has found that the rate of union membership in the workforce has reached an all-time low. Well, it's happened again. This week, the BLS announced unionization had fallen to 10.3%, with union membership stagnant even as the workforce expanded. The report indicated yet again how reliant big labor is on government worker unions. The rate of union membership in government, over 33%, was almost five times higher than the rate of union membership in private sector occupations, which fell to 6.2%, the lowest level the BLS has measured since the survey series began in the 1980s. And as I wrote when these data were released last year, do not expect unions to take their continued decline as an impetus to reform themselves or change their structure. Instead, expect them to work even harder to compel new workers to join their outdated enterprises. And that brings us to the PRO Act, the union wish list bill currently before Congress that we covered in depth in episode 100 of this podcast. House Democrats have announced that they plan to bring the bill, which would require employees' personal contact information to be handed over to union organizers, would prohibit certain independent contractor work arrangements, much like California's controversial AB5, and require all private sector employees in unionized workplaces to pay union fees as a condition of employment by repealing all state right-to-work laws. But none of those might be the PRO Act's worst provision. In a bid to increase unions' power to coerce consumers, employers, and workers to support its agenda, the PRO Act would repeal a provision of law passed in 1947 that forbids unions from employing the radical left's favorite tactic, the secondary boycott. Secondary boycott uses pressure on a third party to harm the people or organization the activist is really mad at. Think of a gun control organization protesting against a bank that made loans to a gun manufacturer. The real goal is to hurt the gun manufacturer by cutting off access to funds, even though the protest technically targets the bank. In a labor context, a secondary boycott involves picketing or strikes to coerce a business to stop doing business with a struck employer, or to coerce consumers to boycott a retailer selling struck goods. Exactly how the ban is applied and exactly what conduct is banned is complicated in technical law. So why would a union or another advocacy group use a secondary boycott? In the words of former union organizer and now objective labor reporter for the mainstream metropolitan liberal Bloomberg media properties, Josh Idelson, quote, Secondary targets make for soft targets. But, and the decline of unionization that the latest BLS report illustrates will only encourage big labor to push for more coercive power. And the PRO Act is a laundry list of those coercive powers. A less than honest environmentalist radical claims, in the words of the CNN cryon, without evidence, that ditching the energy sources responsible for almost 90% of America's energy consumption will have a negligible effect on individuals' lives amid a government-directed just transition that will ensure nobody, other than people richer than you presumably, are worse off. But as my colleague Ken Braun notes in a series published this week at CapitalResearch.org, at least one radical left environmentalist is frank about the truth of the Green New Deal. Naomi Klein, author of On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, admits, quote, There will be changes to the way the wealthiest 10 to 20% of humanity has come to live. As Braun notes, just waking up in the United States puts almost all of us in the crosshairs. For her part, Klein is a longtime radical left intellectual with deep family ties to Canada's far left. Her brother leads a Canadian left-wing think tank, and her father-in-law is a former provincial leader for the socialist New Democratic Party. Klein has written several radical left manifestos before On Fire. The most notable was probably her first, 
the anti-consumerist No Logo, published in 2000. In recent years, she's written a number of radical environmentalist tracks, including This Changes Everything and On Fire. So what does Klein's Green New Deal entail? My colleague Braun begins, On Fire straight out says that we cannot, quote, sustain the impossible dream of luxury for all, quote, and that, quote, air travel, meat consumption, and profligate energy use must go on our chopping block. But wait, there's more. Klein, proposing reductions of 10% of energy consumption every year for at least two decades, admits that that would require, quote, radical and immediate degrowth strategies in the U.S., EU, and other wealthy nations. And while Americans get used to lower standards of living in Klein's world, Klein's superstate would seize what remains of their liquid asset to hand out abroad. Braun continues, This will require a, quote, managed transition to another economic paradigm, where, quote, increases in consumption should be reserved for those around the world still pulling themselves out of poverty. Of course, Klein gives into wishful thinking about the ramifications of living in the society her demands would require, but it's notable to point out one final Kinsley gaffe. Klein writes, correctly, that, quote, capitalism is a tiny blip in the collective story of our species, and that we did without it for, quote, the vast majority of our history. But of course, for much of, arguably all of, that time before, to quote Thomas Hobbes, life was solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. Life expectancy and human comfort have only meaningfully advanced in the age of industrial capitalism, which began sometime in the late 18th to early 19th century. In that time, life expectancies have more than doubled, and the average American enjoys comfort even John D. Rockefeller, the richest man ever to have lived by most estimates, enjoyed as late as 1900. To quote commentary magazine's Noah Rothman, quote, The triumphant consensus that favored markets and trade over autarky and conflict that emerged at the end of the last century has proven an incredible blessing. In the last three decades, 700 million people have risen from extreme poverty. At present, deaths from war have plummeted to their lowest proportion in centuries. But because, to quote Sonny Bunch's law, environmentalists make good movie villains because they want to make your real life worse, Klein would put all of that at risk. That should be a caution to all who look behind the Green New Deal's marketing fluff to what it would really mean. And in our final item, we note the annual rally by tens of thousands of abortion opponents known as the March for Life. Each year since the Roe v. Wade decision held that there existed a nearly unlimited right to procure abortion, opponents of the practice have rallied in Washington to seek the decision's reversal and ultimately to end practice. For the first time, a sitting president will address the rally in person, as President Donald Trump has announced his intention to do so. And high on the pro-lifers' agenda will be expanding the Trump administration's efforts to cut off the flow of federal funds taken from taxpayers and given to Planned Parenthood the nation's largest network of abortion providers, and principal advocate for a maximalist interpretation of abortion access rights. As we discussed in episode 86, the Trump administration has cut off Planned Parenthood from one federal funding program, redirecting some $60 million in federal family planning funds. However, Planned Parenthood reported in its 2018-19 annual report having received more government support at all levels than in any prior year. And pro-lifers are unlikely to succeed at cutting off all the federal monies in the current Congress— after all, Planned Parenthood's political arms spent over $6.5 million supporting Democratic candidates to the House and Senate, helping Democrats take control of the House of Representatives. But what if pro-lifers did succeed at some future time in cutting federal funds to Planned Parenthood? Well, it would be better to get the federal government away from funding a major ideological interest group and the network that provides an estimated one-half of abortions in the United States. Don't expect a federal funding cut to shut down the network. First, pro-abortion rights states might simply fill the gap with state taxpayer money. Second, and more importantly, 
the left's massive foundation network can always step up its funding for what is euphemistically and expansively called reproductive health, already valued at over half a billion dollars per year. The biggest player in the abortion funding space, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, holds $2.4 billion in assets and receives substantial annual contributions from liberal multi-billionaire Warren Buffett. Between 2003 and 2018, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation contributed over $1.5 billion to the sector. Other big players include the Ford Foundation, Hewlett Foundation, and Packard Foundation, each possessing a staunchly pro-abortion ideology and billions in assets. That's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.